Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley. This week under the radar, the fight to legalize marijuana is just getting started in Massachusetts, but a legal medical marijuana industry is already taking root. Plus, Bostonians are working to cut out the farm in Farm to Table. And did Boston Public School Superintendent Tommy Chang do his homework? Later, we see how things have shaken out from Maine's beloved documentary institute, SALT. Following its executive director's resignation and a formal notice that it was shutting down, we'll hear how a new chapter has become possible. But first, joining me in studio is Gen Dumshus, Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. Hi, Gen. Hey, how are you? Sue O'Connell, co-publisher of Bay Windows in the South End News. Hey there, Sue. Hey, Kelly Crossley. <laughs> and WGBH news reporter Rupa Shanoi. Welcome, Rupa. Hi, Kelly. All right, let's get it kicked off. I'm going to start with you, Gen, because um, you did an interesting report about thousands of people, not just a few, turning out for a cannabis convention, if people are wondering about cannabis, that is marijuana. Talk about that and what drew them and, and how did it go? Well, was at the Park Plaza uh, Hotel uh, earlier this month, uh, the, the castle at Park Plaza. And um, it, it was a fascinating uh, look inside an industry that is, that is getting off the ground, much like casinos in Massachusetts. It is just getting started. It's medical marijuana. There's people who are fighting to legalize uh, marijuana for recreational use next, uh, next year. And uh, what you had is at one table uh, at this cannabis convention, you had people with T-shirts that had, like, the New England Patriots mascot smoking a bong. (laughs) And uh, at the next table, you had, you know, a guy in a suit uh, promoting his medical marijuana dispensary that's going to open in Brookline uh, later this year and a Northampton um, dispensary that's going to open hopefully by the end of the month, uh, in in his words. So um, so what you're seeing is kind of a... a, uh, an industry that's coming out of the underground, um, and I think that's that's kind of what they're struggling with to be taken taken seriously, uh, because there's a lot of money involved in this too. And you've seen it in Colorado, uh, you see it in California. There, there's a lot of money involved, um, a lot of cash going around, um, and it's it's a fascinating uh, uh, industry to watch. Um, I, I personally don't uh, don't smoke. I, I don't gamble uh, at casinos either, and I cover casinos, so it's from. Sure, Jen. What's that? I said sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, skeptical reporter. I understand that. Um, but it's it's just something to to watch. And I, th- I think it, it bears close watching just because uh, of both casinos and marijuana have, uh, you know, kind of these, uh, uh, you know, dark ties, underground ties. And, and it really behooves us as a uh, as a state to make sure that both industries are implemented uh, uh, correctly. And going to these conventions uh, kind of gives you gives you an eye of, of uh, how it's coming along. Well, um, so... In 2012, Massachusetts passed the law for medical marijuana, and there's, what, two dispensaries now? One open yeah. in Salem, and the other one is coming, as you said. Uh, uh, there's actually word? one in Brockton, I believe. Brockton. So Salem okay. and Brockton uh, are open. And that's it. I mean, this is unconscionable, first it of all, is. for the people who need it. But my point, um, following up on Gen's concern about the underground ties and all the rest of this, it's way past time to be thinking about this as a legitimate industry. And let's get about the business of actually putting some regulations in place right. that don't prevent people from getting the medicine they need. And then then we can also address the other issues that have to do with 
broader legalization that some people would like to see. You know, I feel like we're at the beginning of the 1900s where the, you know, the, the, the traveling elixir guy pulls in in his carriage and tries to sell you these little bottles of potions. Some of them work, some of them don't. You know, we the fact that we still are treating this cannabis with this this lack of framework is crazy. You know, we still haven't addressed the issue of pesticides. I mean, let's just talk about it like it it was a vegetable. Um, it might be easier for people to understand than a medicine or a recreational drug. You know, we're buying our vegetables, many of us, in a much more open-minded and critical way. But meanwhile, the marijuana and cannabis industry is all over the place. I mean, what are they spraying on it? How are they growing it? What soil is in it? What? How much THC, which is the 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 uh, the, the chemical in it that makes it effective? How much is in it? Who? It, we don't have any regulations, any standards, and it's really. I, I'm worried about in Massachusetts. It took us so long to get the dispensaries up and running. How long is it going to take us to have a uniform code? It's here. It's a medicine. It may be a recreational thing. We still need standards. Well, see, this is the problem, Rupa, because the few people who are trying to get these dispensaries open are caught between this sort of federal law that people say could be implemented, saying it's a it's a nasty drug and one should not be having it. And then it's a law that says it's a medicine. And so... You know, that's that already is is a recipe for underground marketing. <laughs> I've, I've got to say, uh, and the people, the business people have to be looking at Colorado and just gritting their teeth and so frustrated because a lot of people characterize it as a renaissance there right now because of pot. And that's that's worth mentioning that, you know, and this is, is a legal, huge economic driver. Yeah, yeah, yes, theirs is legal. So they have much broader distribution. In fact, I think I did a commentary about how here, 2012, nothing, now two dispensaries. There, they passed the law and then all of the dispensaries were up and running all over the place, even despite this sort of twilight between the federal and state um, laws. As a relative newcomer to Massachusetts, <laughs> to New England, it kind of seems like we get caught up in those discussions a lot and just like weighed down and, and it takes us a long time to do things here because we talk about it so much and contemplate all the repercussions while other people actually do it. That's why they call us the nanny state often. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, let me just mention something that's a, that's a, a particular uh, point and that could lead people in wrong rate, wrong ways potentially, and put the other, the legitimate business people, the ones that were meeting these thousands um, in a weird spot. And that is because of the federal laws, you cannot bank. Um, right, you can't right. use any banking. But you know what, Kelly? That's um, not the first time, and they're not the only business that this happens to. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a Cambridge-based business called Online Buddies, which which is a uh, a service that runs Manhunt, which is sort of the the precursor to uh, uh, the the grinders and the um, whatever the the straight version of that is. Mm-hmm. We're men meeting men for mm-hmm. for for non-monogamy relationships, <laughs> if you will. They can't bank either. Oh. You know, so the banking industry without any self-awareness or irony, uh, who are many cases are laundering money for, for mobsters, refuse on a regular ba- basis to not touch somebody's money because they think the industry is wow. not above ground. So that's a whole other show for you. But, you know, it is difficult for the cannabis business people to bank, and it is difficult for people in all sorts of legal businesses that people view as immoral to bank. Can I just mm-hmm. mention, uh, again, you're saying this is another show entirely, but 
I, I covered a story a while ago for a long time that Muslims, Somalis especially, have trouble sending money back mm-hmm. to refugee camps yes, Be- right. for this specific reason. They say there are, banks say there are lots of terrorism regulations that just make it laborious and things like that. But they are not technically barred from helping Somalis send money back to refugee camps, but they don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, it just makes it, you know, hard for the the people on the industry side again, but also for the people who are going to use a dispensary. I mean, you got to have cash. And right. uh, what I'm hearing about how much this costs even for people who are trying to get their medicine, it's outrageous. It's really well, expensive. Right. If if uh, one one thing I've noticed about in the dispensaries in 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 what they're saying to patients and people who who want to show up there, they've been stressing how high security these places are, saying like we've got, you know, HD cameras, we've got you know, paid security guards who are working with the local police force. Uh, they have to stress that uh, high security. And on uh, just, to, just to veer off into the medical front as well, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren in August signed on to a letter uh, to the DEA and other health and human service agencies at the federal level, level saying like... Drug enforcement agency. Drug enforcement mm-hmm. agency t- telling them like, what, what, are you, what are you guys doing to help along research on medical marijuana? Because there is, there is a dearth of research and mm-hmm. this, has to, this has to start moving quickly because you have states that already have it legal. Well, um, is there another convention planned or is there more of these in the future coming up? Yes, there'll be another one in, uh, I believe, next year. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, as again, as the industry kind of comes into fruition uh, here and as uh, the effort to legalize ramps up, you're going to see more and more of these. Um, All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it because I, I have a feeling next year it's going to be more than thousands attending this. Yes. <laughs> Safe to say. Um, particularly if the ballot question about trying to legalize, there's, that'll be more people in place trying to talk about this as well. All right. Let's move to something that captured uh, the headlines last week uh, in a couple of ways. So the first part of the story is that Ahmed Mohammed, who is 14 years old, young man, apparently likes to tinker and has a scientific bent, built a homemade clock at home, brought it into school to show his teacher. The teacher thought it looked like a bomb. They called everybody in. They kept him in uh, interrogating him for an hour and a half with no parent. He asked for his parents. He asked for someone else. They would not bring it. They ascertained that it wasn't a bomb because they didn't call a bomb squad. And then, however, they arrested him, putting him handcuffs and led him away. So needless to say, this became a huge uh, issue. This is in Irving, Texas. And by the way, the mayor said um, she was okay with that because, um, after all, Muslims are affiliated with all the terrorist action going on. And he could have been one. So, hey, too bad. Um, She since has walked that back a little bit. But uh, the bottom line of that is that it brought to mind, Rupa, some work you've been doing here, uh, as has been happening across uh, the country as Muslim American communities say, hey, uh, we're being surveyed, the assumptions are being made by us, and it's uh, coming into a legal um, area where police are sort of quasi, I don't even what, know what to say, but they're they're taking part in surveying the communities in ways that they don't other communities right. they, who may or may not um, harbor terrorists, right. quote unquote. Uh, so talk to us about what is going on here. And then I'm going to uh, also point out something else that happened uh, last week, which also buoyed up this conversation even more. Continue. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think it's worth mentioning one tiny nuance that hasn't gotten out about that 14-year-old boy 
so you you said they they ascertained it wasn't a uh, a bomb, mm. but then they started talking to him about this being a hoax bomb, mm. like he had brought it in order to scare people. Mm. And I think that's kind of indicative of, of kind of a, a larger attitude of distrust between these two communities of law enforcement and, and the Muslim community. And uh, so what you were talking about, what I've been covering, is this um, outreach program that uh, the federal government has been doing here and in two other cities, one being Minneapolis, which I happen to report in for four years. And it's relatively new here. It's been going on at a ground level there in Minneapolis for a while. And I mention that because it's been really uh, striking to me how different the reactions are from the Muslim community there and here. There, uh, they got integrated really on. They have you know, good relationships, but that's that's police at the at the local level working it for a very long time. Here, there's a lot of distrust. There's a they're coming in in a very intentional way, and I, I don't know I don't know why there's this there's this barrier between them. But I mean, Muslims are perceiving that the FBI and and the police are saying, you know, we want we want to work with you. We want we want to outreach to you. And the Muslims are like, you just want to watch us, you know, and and, and it's, it's it, they can't cross that barrier. And I, I just overall, we haven't we haven't addressed this problem of, mm-hmm. of how to walk forward together and and work with the Muslim community to address this problem where I'm, I'm, we have in some places, but not in others and certainly not on national stage. You know, this is this is mm-hmm. a problem that also arises in the in the gay community mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And it's it's from an origin of mistrust, which is, as Rupa points out, really the key here, I think, as well. You know, in the Fens, in the Fenway Gardens, mm-hmm. uh, every couple of years, there are a number of assaults that happen. They seem to spike. And the police come into the Fens, which is historically a place where gay men go to cruise anonymous sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as the, the assaults happen and the police come in, many gay men get upset that the police are watching them, Mm. you know, and no matter what the police say or no matter how dangerous or even a few years ago, there was vandalism in the gardens that were there, the the um, the the victory gardens that are in the fence. Um, And they were there, the police to to see who was, you know, vandalizing Mm. the gardens. And so it's it's it. In the, in the LGBT community, it seems to be men of a certain generation who have historically and validly had mistrust of police, and it only kind of aged out, if you will. So it's a it's a common thing, I think, when when the origins of your relationship are mistrust. You well, know? How, well, how about if, if if again your first contact with a community is to say we're outreaching. <laughs> You know, then you're like, okay, yeah. I've been sitting here the whole time. You didn't outreach before. What's <laughs> yeah. what's going on? You know, and it and it's perfectly could be perfectly right, right. innocent, but that looks like all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're you're looking at us differently. And we're also mm-hmm. dealing with a slight attitude shift in the Muslim community. In the, after September 11th, they were all about working with the police. They still are, but now they're getting more uh, aware of how they have to look out for their rights, be vocal about them, things like that. And it's a slight shift that if we're coming to them, if the police are, like you say, coming to them in a new in a new way. They, the first time. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're very aware that they have to, from the beginning, 
be vigilant about their rights. So let me just put this on the table, and again, you can respond to it. Um, everybody can. So while this was happening, in the days after Ahmed Mohammed's arrest and the whole brouhaha, and uh, there's a Twitter account, I am uh, Ahmed, set up by his sisters, which has gotten you know millions of hits now of support. Uh, President Obama has invited him to the White House. He mentioned he wanted to go to MIT. MIT people have said, please come. The president, uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, has invited him and said, we need scientists. This is ridiculous. We whatever, whatever. But just to so under people understand that, you know, this is running deep now in uh, in our nation, not just in certain communities. Donald Trump, a uh, <laughs> Republican presidential candidate, held a huge rally after the large debate, after the debate last week at CNN when he, you know, some people said he did well, others not so much, but whatever. He's still leading in the polls. And he decided he would take questions. So I want you to hear the first question that came to him. We problem in this country. It's called Muslims. We know our current president is one. Right. You know he's not even an American. We need this first question. This man. First question. But anyway, we have training camps growing where they want to kill us. Mm-hmm. That's my question. When can we get rid of We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people are saying that, and a lot of people are saying that bad things are happening out there. We're going to be looking at that and plenty of other things. Well, there's a bad thing happening. Yeah. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) Now, he's walked back some of those comments and said, you know, I didn't really hear him. Um, Listen, I wasn't paying attention to that. I was answering the the back end about the training camps, not the front end, about the bias and the Muslims. But the bottom line is that this... Um, is running through and then ran through some of the debate last week again. And so we're talking about an environment which would allow for uh, other kinds of suspicions. And so it would be natural that there would be tension in this community. Well, it it encourages a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. It encourages ignorance. And and I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the... it becomes a feedback loop when you when you're listening to the to the same stuff. You're going to the, to some of these websites that are reinforcing your own beliefs, and you know there's 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 scientific uh, studies that show that when people when when they deeply believe something and they see you know data that disproves it, they don't believe it. They don't they they just kind of retrench into their own beliefs. And I think you know we're, we we see this play out. Uh, during the presidential uh, election every four years uh, where people just kind of dig in their heels, um, you know, and, and, they, and they won't let go. I mean, the, the, the President Obama Muslim thing, the birth, birth certificate thing, it's just it, – it just it's one of those things that doesn't die. You know, no matter, no matter how many t- – it's, it's a zombie uh, – uh, a zombie platform for, for uh, some candidates. Listen, there's t- a good piece – there's good news here too. Mm-hmm. We have a president named Barack Obama who got elected twice and we have a kid named Ahmad who's now going to MIT. Okay, and to the White House, and to the White House, you know. So it's awful, and there is definitely a huge part of this country that is ignorant, and on the other end, uh, there's a huge part of this country that is uh, impartial and objective and judges things on the value. So you know, it's just it's just the cost of moving forward. And thanks, and thanks to social media too. I mean, yeah. you're, you're you're seeing the people connect. You know, even even with if if the people within uh, the young the young man's community weren't uh, standing with him, you had other people. Across right. the country, doing so, the president reached out. I mean, and I, I can't imagine that have happened. Like, no, it's four, like the Ryan White ago. situation. Remember Ryan White, <laughs> yeah. the young kid who yeah. had HIV yeah. and AIDS, and yeah. in the southern state, his house got burnt down. Elton John ended up stepping in, but that took months right. for that to right. happen. This is something that happened in a day. And mm-hmm. just like Ryan White, there were lots of people out there who didn't go through mm-hmm. such horrible extremes, but were still living right. it. Yes. As lots of people yes. are 
just like this 14-year-old boy. Uh, the, the Donald Trump thing, I got to say, okay, of course, I'm not okay with all of that being said, anything like that. But people are responding to him because he's saying things that isn't, aren't PC, and they really like that. But uh, I, I got to say, it's kind of nice to have things on the table. We can it's actually, true. we can it's go, true. we can say that is wrong. Saying that is wrong, I will tell you why what you're saying is wrong. It feels like for a long time we just haven't been saying this stuff. So we haven't been addressing it. So at least we're, we know what they're thinking now. They're willing to say it. So Well, it's interesting because a lot of people inappropriately have been comparing his response to John McCain's in the last election. Mm-hmm. And if people may not remember, but that John McCain was at a town hall and taking questions and a woman came up to him and said, that president, he's horrible. He's a Muslim. He's this and that. And John McCain took the microphone away from her and said, no, ma'am, I do not agree with him, but he is none of those things. And so it depends on, you know, we'll see how people respond, but it has to be and he got criticized for that, by the way. Uh, well, we but he also had, got a lot of support. Last yeah. week we had a mm-hmm. debate where the facts and science right. were not challenged. Like people got up there, the candidates, and said things that were scientifically and factually wrong, That's not depending on your point of view for politics. Right. And no one corrected them. That's true. That's a good well, point. And, and the next day, I think David Bernstein, uh, a contributor here, uh, he, he spent like probably a good chunk of the day on Twitter trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, correct some of the stuff. And the people were coming at him, right. saying, you know, Trying to, trying to steer him towards another portion of the debate or, or refusing to acknowledge uh, errors that he was pointing out that yeah. candidates said. Yeah, and that a whole autism, that, you don't play with that. Yeah, that well. People feel really strongly about that. Those are a lot of emotions there. You don't, you don't throw it into something that just isn't a side like that. Well, I, I think that the uh, Ahmed Mohammed story of the 14-year-old um, is, we're going to look back on this as a, as, as a point mm-hmm. in which we'll probably be returning to and referring to as the campaign goes on. And certainly I hope as, you like science. Yeah, I hope he just, did, well, I no, hope he he just didn't make a clock. No, know? no, no. <laughs> Apparently he can no. fix anything. <laughs> That's good to know. No, that he's really been into this all the time. my mother fought for me to be able to take shop because girls didn't take shop when I was a kid and I didn't really like shop. Yeah. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I almost failed. he likes science. So this is good. All right. Okay, moving on. Um, and, you know, this is a good transition to you, Sue, because okay. we're talking about going to school since apparently you were in shop and shouldn't, <laughs> been, shouldn't have been there. <laughs> I needed the right to be there okay. and the right to not go. Okay. That's what I needed. <laughs> well, there's a couple stories I want you to address. Um, one um, that got a little bit of attention, but not much, was uh, the men of color greeting Boston students returning to school. Yeah. And this is interesting because... As we know, in Boston public schools, the population is mostly um, African-American and Latino. And as we also may remember, a year ago or a year and a half ago, a major report came out saying that the young men were especially being uh, not supported Mm -hmm. and damaged in the schools. And so this was an idea by... Carlos Enriquez. Yes, Carlos Enrique, uh, Enriquez, former uh, state representative. And it also happened, I think, in Atlanta and in Hartford uh-huh. that these uh, men of color, men in the community, uh, decided that they would get out and sort of do a good old-fashioned football line, greeting the kids uh, getting to school. And it was primarily in the minority communities. But, you know, as in Boston, the schools are all over the place. So, uh, But they, they showed up on uh, opening school uh, the day of opening school, the hashtag was greet the kids, greet the children. 
and they just made a, a welcome line. Um, and men of all types, you know, not just men in business suits, but just all the men in, in the neighborhood uh, just did a greeting line for the kids as they went into school. And that happened, I think, in three or four schools around the Boston community. At the same time, um, at Madison Park High School, uh, the, uh, the vocational, uh, the vocational school, school mm-hmm. which has had problems mm-hmm. over the past couple of years with kids not getting their schedules. This is a, a very, very um, well-respected school, high school in the, in the, in the uh, Boston public school system. In fact, they are considering making it a type of exam school for vocation that you, you have to actually get letters of recommendation from guidance counselors to go. So they're upping the ante uh, there as well. The mayor was there along with the superintendent of schools greeting the kids, letting them know that, you know, we, we're taking this seriously. We're going to make sure you have your schedules. You remember last year the kids yes. actually had to make their own protest. You know, so there's this great attention now on the schools and the kids going. I'm a big fan of of the idea that if you feel your community, however you define your community, if it's Mary Kay Cosmetics people or, you know, your block <laughs> or your religion, if you think you're not being represented fairly, then go out and represent. You know, go mm-hmm. out and be where you're not expected to be, even if you're already there, mm-hmm. and make a big deal. So I couldn't be more thrilled that these guys got out. I, I mean, I know at least five or six men personally who went out found out about it on Facebook and just showed up and greeted the kids. And, you know, for first graders, second graders, junior high school Mm. kids, seeing this sort of support from the neighborhood, after the summer we've had in the city with these random shootings, shootings of houses, you know, the execution that just happened uh, last week Mm -hmm. up in, um, in the Mission Hill area, you know, this, that needs to be tempered. And as an antidote, anecdote, antidote with, uh, the fact that there are people in your community who look like you, who care about you and want you to do well in school. So is this something that's going to go on? Or what, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that the, that, uh, the, the, the folks that I've spoke to that have, have been involved in it want it to be an ongoing thing, uh, maybe forming an ad hoc group that just shows up to do support volunteering at school. Mm-hmm. A lot of these guys didn't have kids in the system, you know, mm-hmm. um, which means they had the time <laughs> to yeah. actually show up. They weren't dropping their kids off. You know, it's ironic. Uh, that many people who drive their kids to school just can't get out of the car and do this. Yeah. But, you know, so these were business people. And I think that Henrique uh, is really uh, building a coalition of volunteers who will do this. Uh, and again, it's it, it happens in Big Brothers. It happens at the Y. It happens in the community centers. But they're making it a much more visible way for both the public to see, you know, and this is an important uh, yeah. aspect of it, but also for the kids to kind of really get that they're being supported. Well, again, this comes on the heels of Tommy Chang getting slammed at the beginning of the year about not being the school not being ready with the assignments for students having their assignments. Parents are freaking out as well they should. Where am I supposed to be dropping off my kid? I don't know. How long does it take and to he, get and there? And of course, right, he right. could say appropriately, "Hey, I didn't do it. I'm just here trying to manage it, and it'll never happen again." But we've heard that before. So, what's your take? What's your what are you hearing about Tommy Chang now? Um, um, having did he clean that up, and where are we? Well, I, I think he took uh, responsibility for it um, and and tried to tried to get out in front uh, of it. Um, and and I mean, he's still kind of in this uh, uh, honeymoon phase in in a way too. I mean, people are trying to trying to give him some some uh, uh, wide berth. I know Mayor Walsh uh, recently he was asked about you know how much. You know how much is is Tommy Chan going to be his own person, and you know how involved are you going to be? 
and the mayor said, you know, listen, I, I hired him to run the city schools and that's that's what he's going to do, um, which is, you know, again, the, the proof will be uh, in the next year or so. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to look back uh, uh, next year and see how he did. You have, you have to judge him in, in, the, in the context of, of the school year um, uh, overall uh, with periodic check ins. Uh, and obviously it was a rocky, rocky start for him. I think I know. I know a number of people don't know that um, in um, Chicago, where Barack Obama once went to church at Jeremiah Wright's church, which you know Jeremiah Wright was excoriated for his comments in the pulpit. But it is a progressive church in so many ways. One of the things that had to happen if you were a man, whether you had children or not, you had to take on a kid. Mm-hmm. You had to quote unquote adopt, adopt. a kid. Yep. Um, sort of mentor or kid. That was a part of the requirement for membership in that church. So it's very much like this except expanded and over time. That was just a requirement, which I thought was amazing because recognizing that so many um, kids of color really just didn't have that support. And so it didn't matter whether you had kids or not. That was part of the thing. I turn to you, Rupa, to, to say uh, last word on this because whenever we do these stories, people say, well, what difference does it make? You know, what difference does it make that these kids saw – um, these men of color greeting them. You know, what, what, why is that important? Um, I've been to that church many mm-hmm. times, Barack mm-hmm. Obama's church. and Former uh, church. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yes. And, uh, I mean, that's it's a very emotional place. It's a very emotional thing. And I think that's what just this all gets down to. When you see an adult placing importance on your education, that sends a very, very strong message. And these kids are soaking it up. That's it. That they want that. They want messages at this age. And if we give it to them, they'll, they'll operate on it. And, you know, Kelly, the, the mm-hmm. other part, too, is that it, the, uh, the challenge in urban education is mostly with supporting the families that are going to the schools. It's not how much money you put on it. It's not where the schools are. And, and if these kids get any kind of support from these strangers, if you will, from their community, because they don't see it the same mm-hmm. way we see it, it gives them something that they may or may not be getting at home. And that's, that's where the basic support has to go. And hopefully that means that their edu- education is a little bit better. They're more ready to learn, if mm-hmm, you will, mm-hmm. because of that. Because it's also a psychic uh, boost uh, in all of this. Okay, two stories that I'm going to link together here because I think they're interesting, though they're wildly different. One of the, again, your story about the tiny homes, um, microloft starting at $189,000 <laughs> and more go on sale outside of Boston. <laughs> I mean, it's horrendous how much uh, housing goes for in this town. You can buy a village town. in Spain for that. Yes. <laughs> but, we, but we need <laughs> to know, when we talk about, this is not just housing, you know, regular housing here. This is microloft. We're talking tiny space. Yes, uh, 200, <laughs> 300 square feet. Uh, I, I toured uh, them. Uh, there. How long did it take? Uh, yeah, not, <laughs> not that long. long. Not that around. Long. Uh, did it all in about uh, an hour. There were about <laughs> nine of them. Um, so, so they're they're in Chelsea. Uh, it's uh, uh, a two story building. The first floor is uh, kind of this shared workspace, a little bit like work bar. You rent it out, and you can you know bring your laptop and work with with coworkers on a startup or something. And on the second floor, um, there are about nine units uh, ranging two hundred, three hundred square feet. Um, they've got it complete with Murphy bed, uh, if, if, if you want one. And, and I think some of the decks, the decks they had outside that overlooks a, a marina here, Admiral's Hill Marina, mm-hmm. some of the decks were as big as the loft inside. Wow. Um, and the, the, these are targeted towards singles. Uh, the realtor there, uh, Michael Obano was stressing to me that, you know, 37% of Americans, uh, live alone. Uh, he said, you know, this is targeted towards singles and, uh, boat owners. 
uh, and they originally had planned to rent these out. Um, and they had gotten so much interest um, that they said, all right, well, we're just going to sell them as condos. Um, <laughs> are they selling? Because usually people buy before things open. Are they, they? Were, they were getting offers. They were yeah. getting offers yeah. leading up to leading up to the, the kind of uh, formal close of, of, uh, of sale there. But um, uh, it was it was fascinating because I, I couldn't live there. Uh, you know, I, but I can see where a single person could if they had the money. Uh, again, like the lowest lowest one was one hundred eighty nine thousand yeah. dollars. That's still a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, uh, hello. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so. I could live in one of those because I've determined that at in whatever home I'm living in, I only use a certain amount of space. That's true. You know, I mean, I don't, I, I never go out on the deck. I never do well, this. Where did your daughter go? Where? She's uh, the same way. We both all just li- we <laughs> okay. live in the okay. same, you know, I'm like, we could live in okay. a studio apartment. But the price of it is what is the outrageous part of it to me. I love the whole small home. I think, in, you know, when I was growing tiny up. Tiny home. This tiny is not home, small. Tiny home. Weird. When I was growing up, we called them trailers. Yes. Right? You yeah. know, because you could live in one right. of those for a lot less and actually get a little bit of land. Um, but, but these look pretty swank. They are swank. Well, of course they're going to be swank. They're $199,000. And, and this I love is the a... shared idea, you know, the shared office space and the shared. Yeah. But this, it's this, a lot of money. I, there's a lot of other issues. There, some have been proposed in Harvard Square. And um, same kind of th- deal. But, you know, in the end, you got to deal with, I don't care what anybody says, you're going to deal with parking and some other issues that Boston can ill afford to deal right. with on top of having a tiny space and people crowded up on top of each and, other. And it's also it's also the, the, the middle market once again being left behind. Right. Uh, where you have, like, you know, people who want, like, three family, I'm, I'm sorry, three bedroom uh, uh, units and they just can't find it. Um uh, you know, I'm I'm getting married later this year, and you know we want to thank thank you, mm-hmm. and and kind of we're looking around the housing market, and it's incredibly yeah. frustrating. I mean, it, we we uh, we we cut we cut the cable cord earlier this year, and the one thing we we kind of don't miss is house hunters because you want to throw <laughs> a remote at it, <laughs> right. um, given given the the price of housing in some other parts of the country. Um, but it's it's an incredibly frustrating. Um, uh, ordeal to, to right. kind of look around. And I think it, we're not done with this conversation because not only the middle market people are squeezed, there's never been enough affordable housing. And by that, I mean people who are not even in the middle market, but below that. I mean, where do they go? Right. And, crazy. The, and, and the luxury housing, yeah. too, is just, you know, I, I talk it over with my fiance. It's like, we, we don't need nice granite countertops. We just need countertops. <laughs> I know. And just, you know, it, uh, this you focus. room. Exactly. Yes. Um, all right. So I said I tied this together. Rupa, you get like 30 seconds to tell us about this. Um, these two guys who are uh, creating a food system so that people can grow food in their homes. Because <laughs> I kept thinking, where do the people grow the food in their 300-foot uh, tiny home and it's 189000 But they're doing it, right? Yeah, I guess. I I, I would have... Um, th- that's a good tie. But I would have made the tie in the other place. Like, the, these local... I w- I've been... I'm doing a series on food, exploring everything about farmers and farming and everything like that. And the, the high-end aspect is a really big challenge for them because the market is kind of boxed into high end right now. If they don't have perfect produce, the produce that people are expecting, mm. they they can't sell. And so a lot of farmers are just losing out because they, they can't sell to that high end market. Okay, two MIT guys. These are two um, MIT frat guys who I uh, swear they didn't use it for pot, but it was um, it, it's a hydroponic system that you can put in your home. It looks like a big cabinet. It includes a fish tank. So the fish, fish. actually, the, it, it fertilizes the rest of the system. And you can essentially grow the greens that you, and just go and graze. And they, they're really good. I was trying them and they're like sharp and I tried some arugula and it was amazing. And just that fresh aspect is great too. But it's 
five thousand dollars. Oh, and that they I I broke it down with them, and it's mostly because of the technology. And they they promise the price point is going to come down, and it takes about the same amount of energy as a refrigerator. So, but they 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 really think that this is going to be the future as more people move into urban areas. But at the same time, there's this uh, increased feeling, especially among the that generation of 20-somethings, that they want to be closer to their food. They want fresher food. They don't want packaged food. You don't even need the farm. Right, right. <laughs> and so they're going to be looking how to farm in urban areas. And the problem is in lots of urban areas, everything is contaminated. Mm-hmm. And so you can't farm outside without raised mm-hmm. beds mm-hmm. because if you want to move that contaminated soil, there's lots of regulations that come into play and it's super expensive. So there you go again. Get a table and you can grow your own thing for $5,000 in a fish tank and you're, you're all good. <laughs> I, I, will say that, <laughs> I will say that setup does sound like some of the stuff I saw at the cannabis convention. So no, <laughs> no, no offense to the guys. but that, uh, No, no, they'd say it can be used for is pot. There a fl- oh, okay, all right. Is there a fluorescent light involved? <laughs> yes, yes, very okay. much so. All right, on that note, I'm going to go draw this conversation to a close. Thank you all for joining me again, Sue and Rupa. Thanks, Kelly. Thank, Thank you. you. Gen Dupchus is a Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. Sue O'Connell is co-publisher of both Bay Windows in the South End News. And Rupa Shinoi is a reporter for WGBH News. Thank you all. Coming up, we're turning our focus to the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, the drama that has surrounded its closure, and the unexpected announcement that something new is in store for the 42-year-old program. This is Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Kennebuck High School English teacher Pamela Wood founded the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in 1973. After 42 years in June, the beloved Maine Institute announced it would be closing its doors. But the story doesn't end there. The Quimby Family Foundation and the Maine College of Art teamed up to offer something sweet for Salt, a way forward. Here to help us document the past, present, and future of the organization are Donna Galuzzo, Executive Director of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, and Don Tusky, Professor and President of the Maine College of Art, who are joining us from Portland, Maine. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Callie. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Also with us is SALT alumna and current director for partner engagement at the International Institute of New England, Cheryl Hamilton. Hello, Cheryl. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with you, Donna, if you would. Um, What happened? It seemed that it was a great surprise to many, certainly probably not to you who were there at the Institute, that the organization was in such financial crisis that the doors would have to close. Yes, I do think it it came as a shock to our local community and and the alumni um, nearby and nationwide. And, you know, I think like a lot of small organizations, um, we've been struggling on a shoestring budget for a really long time. SALT has always run a break-even to sometimes losing model, uh, financial model. And um, so I think, you know, what happened was Struggling these last four or five years really took a toll on the institute. Um, we had some uh, several losing, financially losing years in a row, and with the announcement of my leaving, and the future uncertain, and the financial struggle continuing, the board of trustees had a very difficult decision to make, and so they took a long time to discuss and think about it, and then 
decided in their wisdom that it would be better to try to close with grace and dignity and find a home for our archives and to keep Salt's name alive somehow, um, but to probably shut down programming indefinitely. So we should say that you're you're still with the organization now, but um, because some things have changed. But um, uh, that that was a very grim picture you just painted um, when it looked as though all was lost. But it turns out that uh, others uh, impressed with the work that the Salt Institute had been doing came forward. So Don Tusky, uh, president of Maine College of Art, uh, your organization came forward saying. I think we can offer something to you as a way of survival and a way of actually of thriving into the future. Let's let's do a merger. How did that come about? Well, I think one of the things, like like Donna said, and like you mentioned, a lot of people were shocked and saddened about the the news about salt, and a lot of us, even beyond uh, Maine, understood the importance and quality of the work coming out of salt, and so. Uh, I think it was sort of just a, a, a natural kind of reaction for us at, over at Mecca to, say, to, to offer any type of, of support or conversation, and that led into some what-ifs. And um, what ifs if, if, if Salt and Mecca were together, utilizing the same overhead, um, doing the great work, continuing the great work uh, that Salt's been doing, but in one place. And, and so we started a conversation, have had several conversations now, and Donna's been talking with our dean um, about what that would look like. Um, we've had a lot of conversations with uh, the trustees at, at uh, SALT as well as at Mecca and as well as a number of alumni at, um, through SALT. So I think it's been a number of conversations and we think there's a really great possibility of SALT and Mecca coming together and I'm gonna <clears throat> and still preserve the great um, identity of SALT. And that's something that's very important to me to make sure that whatever we do, that the alumni of SALT feel really good about that. I know Donna feels the same way. And so um, there's been a lot of careful conversations about how to do that in the right way. So when we say SALT Institute for Documentary Studies and the reason that this uh, place is so beloved, Cheryl, um, this was a place where documentary filmmakers could come and really hone their writing, their production skills, the whole essence of what uh, putting forth a story in that form could be. What made SALT SALT? Why, why were people so concerned about the possible loss of this institution? Great question. Um, I would say that when I attended SALT, it was actually focusing on three areas, writing, radio, and photography. Um, and I actually applied to SALT. My <laughs> my cover letter said, I can't write. I need your help. Will you accept me? <laughs> and I'm amazed that they did. And I'm totally grateful. Like so many alumni, it is as much an institution that teaches you skills as a way to navigate through life. And that it became not only a home for education, but also for those of us from Maine originally, it just it represents Maine. It's a, a place that you learn skills as well as archiving the wonderful people and environment of our great state. And I think that we attracted a lot of people because of that, but also attracted people from across the nation. Well, talk a little bit more about that, representing the state, really really uh, putting forth the story of the state, if you would. Sure. I mean, a lot of news and press obviously talks about the breaking news of the day. What SALT does is really drills down into talking about the people of Maine and the stories that often don't get the most attention. For example, when I attended, I wrote a piece about a man building an underground house (laughs) who was living in a tent the entire time through the winter of Maine. And so I was camping out in his tent. His story and his commitment to preserving, for example, 
the nature and environment and that relationship between where we live and what we do with the land was greater than just his tent story. And I wanted to get that um, message out. And what does it mean for the state of Maine? And every student that goes through there finds a really unique angle and a new, unique story to celebrate. And so that becomes, for us, Maine. And you go to the exhibits and you're just moved in so many ways by the stories. So, Donna, uh, back to you. Cheryl has just talked about, you know, the, the, the mainness of it, if you will. But salt was also known outside of the boundaries of Maine for what it did there. So how would you describe what made it a, a treasure and a, uh, perhaps offered a particular unique take in shaping storytellers? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the gifts of salt is you come and you get to immerse yourself for a number of weeks. And in our case, uh, 15 weeks right now. And it's very rare, I think, in this day and age that you have an immersive experience in the kind of storytelling that you're doing. And so what that created was a tremendous experience for the cohort of people, the group of people that were doing that storytelling together and individually. And then um, once stories are completed, students were then graduated going out into the world trying to freelance and get jobs across the nation and around the world and I think what quickly became apparent to magazines, to news outlets, to public radio um, organizations is that the SALT student has something very special and unique, a unique take on storytelling. Um, a student who has graduated with experience um, embedding in the field work and spending lots of time with the people that they're writing stories or telling stories about. It's not uncommon, for example, for a SALT student to to go to northern Maine and spend some overnights with the people that they're documenting and then come back to the classroom, receive critique from their peers, drive six hours back north again the next week, continue to spend that kind of time overnight again documenting people. So I think you know that kind of repeat, look at it, critique it, go out into the field, repeat again, that kind of process that happens over 15 weeks created some very unique stories and storytelling and a very unique um, and more professional skill set in a very short amount of time. And that really led to, I think, the great national brand and recognition that we have today. That's my guest, Donna Galuzzo. She is executive director of the SALT Institute. Back to you, Cheryl, um, distinguished alum, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> Alumna. <laughs> um, your work is in... Uh, dealing with uh, telling the story of refugees, and you, you've you had some collaborations with other SALT Institute alum as well to tell this story. Um, and so when we hear all the wonderful stories about what happened, the, the national reputation of the Institute, it had to be quite a shock to you as well to think that the Institute was about to close. Absolutely. Um, your heart broke a little bit, <laughs> for sure. Um, it's a place that many of us gravitated to when we were local and made sure to swing by and see the exhibits. It's a place that you've formed lasting friendships and certainly with people on staff as well as alumni. So because I've worked in nonprofits, I know the difficult behind the scenes fundraising and activities and how I really trusted that they made a really thoughtful decision. But I'm sure as hard as it was for us to hear, it was hard for them to make that. And I am so thrilled <laughs> that Mecca is um, reached out and is taking this role and moving the Institute forward as much as it can in a good collaboration. So when we say Mecca, Don Tusky, that's you, uh, president of Maine College of Art. And I should mention that the Quimby Foundation has also come forward uh, to offer some support in this merger and this saving of the SALT Institute. And uh, people 
people may not know that name, except as uh, these are the people that uh, founded or, or the co-founder of Burt's Bees, Roxanne Quimby, uh, particularly stepped forward to offer support in this endeavor. So, Don, you'll understand then that there was a group of uh, alum uh, called Save Salt who were concerned that what made this unique, what we've been talking about here, was going to be lost in a merger, that uh, perhaps the identity of that institution would be subsumed in any merger with with your college uh, of art. Uh, talk about how you see that not happening, if you, in fact you see that not happening, and why uh in the end, the sum of two parts will be better than the one. Yeah, I, I met with some of those, uh, some of the alums, and really great, sincere, passionate alumni. And and um, I, I I talked about the importance of identity and preserving that if if salt was to come um, under underneath Mecca or part of Mecca. And that and my background is really anthropology, and so I understand ethnography. I understand the importance of documentation. And I also understand um, the importance of having a cohort go, to, go through a process like this together. And um, Donna, as I mentioned earlier, has been meeting with our dean to figure out how that would work within Mecca and still preserve that, that identity of that process that so many alumni talk passionately about. And so I feel really good that we could do that in a way that really makes sense to um, many alumni, makes sense to us. Um, and that um, may really be a great opportunity to have salt be more salt. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, I think there's some things that we could do together that would really be great for not just the state of Maine, but for the whole process of storytelling and documentation. Well, something I learned in, in preparing for this discussion was that uh, at the point of closure, there were some things I think that certainly many of us who weren't alum were not aware of. For example, SALT is not accredited. Um, SALT needed some help uh, digitizing all the information, all the rich archives uh, associated with the Institute. Now, Donna Galuzzo, this is your question. Uh, so talk about what this will mean to take SALT into the 21st century to be prepared for the next generation and the next generation after that of storytellers. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk about that. And the accreditation piece is huge. I mean, over the years, SALT has had relationships with other institutions that have enabled our students to do some credit transfers at times or to use things like AmeriCorps Award to help pay for education. I mean, I think people need to understand and or remember, if they're familiar with SALT, that most of our students, an overwhelming number, already have a four-year degree. So we have people coming in right now who it's very important for them to find creative ways to fund this education. And, and often we are seeing students who are in their mid to late 20s who have really found now a passion for an early, early, you know, early life career change. And so, again, funding that can be very difficult and challenging. So the opportunity to work with an accredited institution such as Mecca and to go through the proper channels of accreditation and to help students have an opportunity to do credit transfers, to have access to educational loans, to use AmeriCorps awards, for example, to pay for education, this is an incredible opportunity. I mean, obviously, anytime we can enrich and supplement someone's access to education. It's very exciting. And I think certainly down the road, it will help our students continue to follow their passions and to go to graduate school and 
to be able to transfer those credits from some very worthwhile and incredible field experience that they've had at SALT. So, I mean, that's a, that's a huge piece of what it will mean, I think, in part to partner with an institution such as the Maine College of Art. Very and, exciting. And what about digitizing the information? What, what will that mean and, and how, what will that look like for both the students and I'm think, looking forward thinking about alum who may want to tap into that? Yes, exactly. So, you know, SALT's archives are incredibly large and very rich. We've got a 42-year-old archive. It started when SALT started. And the amount of holdings are phenomenal. I think most people don't realize we have close to uh, one and a half to two million photographic negatives, 10,000, 12,000 hours of recorded tape interviews, um, another twelve to 15,000 black and white and color prints in the archive. So just tremendously large body of work for such a small institution and incredible stories about just the real life people of Maine, everyday people. And so it's always been our frustration and a nemesis that we weren't able to afford to digitize that work. It's incredibly expensive to take analog work, meaning tape and photographic negative from film, and to transfer it to something digital. As some people out there who are familiar know, it's we're talking about a one-and-a-half to $2 million process to take all of that information and make it digital and digitally accessible. So one thing we're trying to do is um, sort of meet somewhere in the middle, if you will, and we're taking all of the final student stories and all of SALT's publications. We used to publish a magazine, and over the years, SALT has also published several books. So we're going to be scanning all of that work and digitizing all of that work, and we're hoping by wintertime, end of the year, turn of the year, that we have a digital story archive that will be available to the public we're working with an organization here in Maine right now to design a user-friendly interface so that people can search out stories by subject, by location, by student, producer, that type of thing. And we're very excited to launch this. I think it will open SALT up to the world and help us share these incredible stories, not only regionally and locally, but nationally and beyond, of course. Uh, Don Tusky, president of Maine College of Art, do you see uh, teachers from the Maine College of Art perhaps teaching at the SALT Institute and vice versa as part of would come out of a merger? Well, it's interesting because that's already hap- it's been happening. And, and we have faculty that have taught both at Mecca and at SALT, and we have graduates uh, teaching of SALT teaching at Mecca right now. So some of that's been going on sort of organically already. So that's why another reason I think there's some natural synergies between Mecca and SALT that just really makes sense in a difficult situation like this to really come together and figure out uh, <clears throat> a somewhat new model for SALT to exist in an independent way and for Mecca to move forward with SALT. Um, Cheryl, look look forward, if you will, and as an alum, um, talk about what you think um, the Institute can bring now to, to some of those new students, given some of the new stuff that will be available to, available to them that's been articulated by both Donna and uh, Don. Sure. I think that more than anything, it's going to be uh, a wonderful sharing of resources. I think it's going to be, certainly when we talk about the financial aid and all those pieces, certainly very attractive. Um, I certainly invested some money um, that I didn't anticipate and it paid off thousands of times over, which I'm grateful for. Um, I think that obviously, um, as Donna talked about, small nonprofits don't have the marketing resources and doesn't have as um, broad a reach with perhaps with 
whether a board or advisor or alums. So you've just multiplied several times over the publicity, the draw, the energy to this program. So I think it's got nothing but tremendous prog- promise. And speak to me uh, just uh, emotionally about what it means to know that this 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 treasure, this piece of Maine and beyond, really, in terms of its impact, is going to be around. Well, one example is I have I, I'm a, such a proud Mainer, and I whenever my friends or other people I meet go to Maine, it's in the top five things I think people should stop by um, that they should connect with salt. I mean, obviously we have the oceans and the mountains, but salt is a worth the time to connect with, and now to be able to drive them both to Mecca and salt is just going to continue to benefit um, personally. Uh, I hope to continue some of the collaborations that we've started and done in the past. Um, I love that I'll still be to call and get advice. Um, I attended 15 years ago now, but I've attended workshops since, and it's certainly been helpful, particularly as there's been a more of a momentum around storytelling of late, to know that I can direct people to some place that I feel confident in their skills that they'll learn. Don Tusky, last word from you. I think it's a great way to make salt more salty, and uh, I think it's going to be uh, a great relationship. And I'm, I've really enjoyed working with Donna, um, and I'm looking forward to working more with the board and, and their board working with our board and, and faculty and staff. And Donna Galuto, last word from you. You've been holding that flag down there almost alone. <laughs> there, there were four full-time staff before now this, uh, this merger, which could uh, bring more resources to you. Uh, last word from you, and an emotional one, too, about having the doors remain open. Well, very grateful for everyone who stepped forward, from the alumni voices who rose up to help make this happen, to the Quimby's who have been incredible supporters of SALT all along the way, the Maine College of Art, Don Tusky, everyone over there has been open arms, really excited, loving and welcoming. And, you know, I've heard Don use the phrase community is studio to describe part of what they do at the Maine College of Art. And I feel like that's such a beautiful turn of phrase that describes SALT and our history. I mean, we use community as our studio and just... I went to SALT. I was a photography student back in 1997, and this place has meant so much to me over the years. I've given, you know, 15 years of, of my work life to SALT and had my experience there as a student. Um, it was probably the hardest thing ever to think of SALT closing and to think of SALT as having new life and to being able to do more within Maine and for Maine and to have a, a much farther reach as just um, – it's a, it's a relief. It's exciting. It's joyful. It's, um, it's something that I'm really looking forward to. Well, thank you all for telling this story of salt then, now, and in the future, I guess, pointing us in that way. Thank you all, Donna, uh, Don, and Cheryl. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much. Donna Galuzzo is the executive director of the SALT Institute for Documentary Studies. Don Tusky is the president of the Maine College of Art. And Cheryl Hamilton is an alum of the program who is now the director for partner engagement at the International Institute of New England. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed, and including Lanyap, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineers are John Parker and Antonio Oliart. And Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.